We've got 20 minutes to cover three of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. Anybody taking bets? All right, well, here's the good news. Um, I'm teaching this text. Here's the bad news. I'm covering it in 20 minutes. So uh, let me just tell you, a number of years ago, there was a guy that came to me and was trying to ask me to explain to him the difference between what he called dispensationalism and reformed. Now, that is a bad question. And I never answer questions that I'm asked just by answering the question. I always say to them, well, why don't you define this thing called dispensationalism? Or why don't you define for me this thing that you're calling reform? Does anybody know what yesterday was? Yeah. No, you pagan people obsessed with candy. Uh, it, was, it was Halloween. It was also Reformation Day. 495 years ago, Martin Luther uh, nailed what has become known as the 95 Thesis on the door, All Saints Chapel, uh, there in Germany, where he basically began to protest certain practices within the then dominant church in the world. Uh, understand, in the early days of the church, what would happen is there was not a lot of literate people, and there were certain epicenters of power. The word Catholic, anybody here know the Apostles' Creed? I can remember as a kid, when I would read the Apostles' Creed, I wasn't a believer. My parents would drag me to a church. It was a Methodist church. And in this Methodist church, we used to do this thing called the Apostles' Creed. At the end of the Apostles' Creed, it says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And I stood there and I protested. I go, wait a minute, we're Catholic. We're not Catholic, we're Methodist. I'm not going to say I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. It was the same thing I did when I would go to the St. Louis Cardinal baseball games downtown. And uh, I would sing this thing called the National Anthem. And it would say that we are from the land of the free and the home of the braves. I would never sing that line. Because we are cardinals. And I'm not kidding you. It really bothered me uh, when I would go to church. And it would say the Holy Catholic Church. And it bothered me when I'd go to the cardinal games as a young man. And say, why are we the home of the braves? Especially when we were playing those dagnum Atlanta braves. Now, let me explain that. First of all, it's not braves. It's brave, son. You can sing it. Secondly, no one ever told me this at church, but the word Catholic, if you do look at a lot of hymnals or things like that that uh, possess this little um, thing called the Apostle Creed in them, there's often a little one by it, like you'll see in your Bible. The reason there's a one is because if you look in your margin, you'll see alternate um, translations of that word. The word Catholic simply means universal. And so I absolutely do believe in the holy universal church of jesus christ which is made up of all true believers people that have rightly come to understand that it's by faith alone in christ alone through grace alone that we are saved now one of the epicenters of world power was rome and it was also um the epicenter of much influence within the church and so the way that little community of early believers saw scripture and saw things had a lot of influence they had the money if you will to have a lot of satellites not just in fort worth but all over the known world and so often you would find the leader of that expression if you will that denomination that understanding of scripture that emanated forth from rome you would find satellites all over the rome world all over the known world including in germany and that is why it was called the Roman expression of the universal church. Now that basically, because it was so tied to government powers, was 
the church. There were dissenters all the way along. Martin Luther was not the very first one who saw things as he saw them, but he certainly was the most famous because he was a part of the Roman universal church. Um, There was an incredible stranglehold on people then because they couldn't do what you guys are blessed to do. They were illiterate, and even if they were literate, they weren't literate in the language that information about heaven trafficked in, which was uh, not the native tongue of people. Men died, John Huss, William Tyndale. Men died translating the scripture into the language of the people because those that controlled the truth of God controlled people. It was said of Luther, if it weren't for Luther, one bishop said, we could have made all of Germany eat hay. In other words, if we told you, you got to do that to go to heaven, and this is what the good book says, and you can't read the good book, and you want to go to heaven, you're going to eat hay. But Luther changed all that. Um, Luther's ultimate tipping point was when um, there was a bishop that was sent from Rome around Europe, and specifically to Germany, in the little district that Luther ministered in, where people were compelled to give indulgences. Indulgences were a means through which you could move your dead relatives from this holding tank called purgatory into heaven. And there was a little phrase that was sprung forth that Luther, Luther captured and, and used. It wasn't really um, his initially, but the phrase is this. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory into heaven springs. And Luther said, listen, the Pope is one of the richest men in the world. He frankly has more money than any ruler that I know. Why would he want to build his church on the backs of the poor? Especially when we're tying it to something that I cannot find in Scripture. Forgiveness is God's alone to give. We cannot sell it. He had 95 different things that he protested, and that turned into the Protestant Reformation. It's interesting, when people ask me, uh, Todd, are you dispensationalist or reformed? That is a, do you walk to school or bring your lunch question? And I just typically say to them, well, first of all, why don't you explain to me what reformed is, what you think reformed is? Are you asking me if I believe that I'm still saved basically through the means of grace made available to the church and Jesus plus the church and my uh, performance of the sacraments is what saves me? Because that's where the word reformation comes from. Now, you need to know this. Men who are beginning to take on different destructive heresies within the church don't always get all the way through it. Luther, praise God, nailed the first part of Romans 9 through 11. Really, he nailed Romans 1 through 8 exceedingly well. He did not do so well in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And what happened is he really adopted or continued the view of the church that had been around largely since about the 3rd or 4th century, which was that the church had superseded or replaced Israel. Too often today, folks make the statement that reformed. We get this question a lot. Are you reformed? And there's always two major ideas. They don't even talk about, are you not Catholic? People don't even mean that. They know I don't go to a Catholic church, so they're not asking me, are you not Catholic? They know I'm not Catholic. But they want to know if I have an understanding of salvation as a divine work, or am I more Arminian is another phrase. In other words, do you believe that your preaching and your teaching and your compelling men 
and your deciding as a man to choose to run after God is the means of your salvation. They want to know, do you believe in election when they ask if we're reformed? They also want to know, do you believe if the church has replaced Israel? Now, the answer to the first is yes, the answer to the second is no. Why? Because the Bible teaches the first, it does not teach the second. It's as simply as I can say it. Romans, people say, Todd, are you Augustinian? Are you a Calvinist? I say, no, I am a Biblicist. All right? I hope I agree with what Scripture says. There are many good men who really wrestle with these things, who disagree. John Piper, you may have heard that name. Piper would have a tendency to describe his understanding of Israel's relationship with the church in a way that that drifts more towards the classic understanding, misunderstanding, mislabeling of Reformed, which is that the church inherits Israel's future blessing. Um, I would tell you that largely within the different camps that... uh, that the labels, which are always unfortunate, but if you hear somebody talk about this, replacement theology, covenant theology, it's really a covenant hermeneutic, or it's, um, it's an understanding of a way to explain Scripture that it makes the most sense to some that the church, God is going to sub in for Israel, and the church is going to be the means through which God accomplishes his covenant promises to Abraham. Now, the reason the church adopted this, you'll also hear um, expansion theology, you'll hear fulfillment theology, just giving you those terms that are out there. But the most often trafficked today are replacement and covenant. Um, the, the reason that this was adopted, frankly, by the early church fathers is because Israel had been dispersed. The land that they were given didn't exist as their land anymore. The Jews were trafficked through the diaspora all throughout um, the Middle East and then into Europe and, and all over the world. Jewish people were everywhere. They did not have their own land. Israel was occupied by Palestinians, more Muslims, more Arabs, more Byzantines. And they just didn't see how God was going to be able to do what he said he was going to do with Abraham through, to Moses through David and his descendants in the land literally. And so what we do and what we often cause great peril to ourselves when we do is we try and help God out by explaining things in a way that makes sense to us. And so what are you going to do when you don't believe that there is a national entity called a Jewish state, called Israel? You don't believe there's a land that they'll ever get back again because it's never happened before in the history of the world when a nation that isn't a nation coalesces together and goes attack a land area and takes it back to themselves. How's that going to happen? It can't happen. And so this idea that God was faithful and that God couldn't put Israel, because it doesn't exist, back into a land that's occupied by others, they started to handle by spiritualizing the text. And you can't really blame them. Lo and behold, 1948 happens. When God in his sovereignty, I believe, grabs the hearts of world leaders and says, we are going to give this group of ethnic people this specific land back. Now, let me just tell you, if you read your Bible, I don't believe that Israel, as it's currently constituted, is the Israel of end-time fulfillment. I think what happens and is happening is a part of God's end-time fulfillment. That is not a risky statement, because everything is. 
But what I want to let you know is when the Bible talks about the regathering of Israel, it talks about the regathering of believing Israel. And Israel is not believing yet in their Messiah. And I think, and we mentioned this and touched on this a little bit last Sunday, that, that Israel is going to have to really, really get broken, impoverished again, hunger for some leadership again that it doesn't currently have before it recognizes their brother that they have forsaken. But the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is very specifically letting you know, don't you think that just because God is starting to work primarily to reach non-Jews, that he's not going to do what he said he's going to do. And this is really good news. He said, because if in effect the judgment of these people or the cursing of these people has led to your blessing, what do you think the blessing of these people will lead to for you? So that is a basic primer and all we can really give uh, this morning on this whole issue. We believe that God is going to do. We don't believe that he has subbed out Israel with the church in the sense that the church is going to inherit all the covenant promises that he made to Israel. We inherit many. We are indwelled by the spirit. Our sins are forgiven. We're reconciled to God. We have been adopted as sons grafted in to the covenant promises given to Abraham. But he is going to do what he said he is going to do with Abraham. In Romans 11, it says the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. And Paul is just basically saying, don't you think for a second that he's not going to do what he said he's going to do. Last thing on this. Um, There was a guy who attended one of the larger churches in this area that teaches that, this reformed, quote unquote, and please, don't ever let somebody tell you you're not reformed. Just because you don't believe that Israel and the church are the same thing. But uh, I, I will tell you that he said, what is the basic difference? This guy happened to not believe what this church was teaching. And I said, well, let me just tell you this. If your pastor ever teaches the book of Romans, I promise you he will not handle Romans 9, 10, and 11. He will skip over it, and he will end in 8, and he'll go to 12. He goes, that is, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And he goes, and guess what, Wagner? He goes, we're teaching right now through Romans. Now, I was teaching at this time at a camp that this guy was at. It was an Easter camp. I go, are you kidding me? You're going through Romans? Where are you? He goes, we just finished chapter 8. I go, when did you finish chapter 8? He goes, we finished chapter 8 two weeks ago. And he said, I'm going to take a break from Romans. We're going to do a few weeks on Easter. And then we're going to come back and pick up Romans. I go, that is unbelievable. I go, what do you want to bet when you pick up Romans that he's just going to assume I ever forgot where they were, and you're going to pick it back up in chapter 12 because there's no way we're going to do that. I go, I want to tell you something. If he doesn't do that, you tell me, and I will get somebody to teach me at Watermark, and I want to come listen to him try and handle Romans 9, 10, and 11 by spiritualizing it away and, um, and teaching that, that text. They can't teach it because it just doesn't fit with this thing that men have to spiritualize and allegorize. You've got to do too many gymnastics. And guess what? This very large church that many of your friends go to, their pastor, when he came back the week after he said, let's get back into Romans. Everybody open up their Bible to Romans 12. Here we go. And off they went. So you can't study this text if you go to certain churches because they can't really handle it. It doesn't fit into Theology. I want to say one more thing, and this I love these guys. These are friends, these are brothers in Christ. I believe I'll be with them in eternity. But I believe that this specific issue of Israel and the church is the beginning of all liberalism in theology. 
I think it was the beginning of us starting to lose the authoritative trust in God's word. What's the application? You don't need to help God out. When you are sitting there and you're going, how in the world is God going to do this? The answer is not going to be we're going to round off the edges. We don't see any way that God can do it. With man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Paul was shouting that. God will do it. Don't you worry about how. He might wait 2,000 years to start to give you some indication that he can do it. But he will do it. You trust in the word of God, not the traditions of men, not the interpretations of men, especially and including Todd Wagner. This is your text with his spirit inside of you if you know Jesus Christ. Ask him to illuminate You read, you study the scriptures to see if these things are so, but God doesn't need your help to do what he says he's going to do. So don't spiritualize the bodily resurrection. Don't you spiritualize the thousand-year reign. Don't you spiritualize um, his promises to Israel. Amen? All right, you don't even know what you agreed to, but I hope you do. All right, here we go. Now, let me handle the other part of this text that is also very difficult, Okay? And uh, it is the issue of election. I want to spend my remaining seven minutes on this. Because this really does trouble people. Most folks aren't going to have a hard time with your view on Israel and the church. You should. Most people won't ask. But they will have a hard time when they go, hey man, are you reformed? Or or do you believe in election? Um, Your answer should be, well, the Bible does use the word elect. The Bible does use the word calling. The Bible does use the word chosen. And so, yes, I believe it because that's what God teaches. What I want to do is walk you through some basic things, give you one last closing illustration, and uh, maybe direct you to a few places if you want to learn some more, okay, on this stuff. Here's a few basic points. Number one, God, God does violate the will of men, but only the will of the chosen. In other words, um, no one is kept from coming to heaven who want to go to heaven, if you understand election biblically, but some are uniquely compelled to come. Let me say this again. God violates only the will of the chosen. When he interrupts the will of man that wants to run away from him as fast as he can, as far as he can, scoff at him, that's what all men want to do. Remember Romans 3? There are none that seek God, none that do right. And then God pricks in us an understanding, often through pain, Sometimes just through grace and and a clarity of understanding where we begin to see his goodness and our sin. The Bible teaches predestination, pro-horizo. It means there is a boundary. That's what we get the word horizon from the word translated as determined in your Bible. Pro, before, horizon. There is a boundary set. When you look out in the horizons, as far as your eyes can see, God sets some boundary that we run into through teaching, through grace, through pain, that causes us to stop, see the truth, and turn. That is what he says when you are predestined to certain things. That he will create opportunities or environments or circumstances that produce results that we choose that are consistent with his will. Okay? Now, the Bible does not teach double predestination. It does not teach that God creates some people only to go to hell for the purpose of them going to hell. It does, however, say that 
there are certain men that are running to hell as fast as they can that he interrupts. So there's the second point. I've already mentioned it. No one is kept from coming to heaven. But some, according to Paul, are uniquely compelled to come. He uses this phrase, which is very troublesome. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And you go, how in the world can he say that? It is a comparative term. It is not an ultimate affection. What he's saying is, he loves all men. Christ died for all men. God loves the whole world. But the whole world is running away from him as far as they can, as fast as they can. And what God's going to do with Jacob, different than Esau, if you go and look at Esau, Esau is loved by God, pursued by God, blessed by God, made a nation by God. But eventually, the Edomites, which are the descendants of Esau, continue in their stiff-necked hard-heartedness, and God finally says, Esau, I'm going to let you go. And so they continue on the road that they're on. There's only one nation in the Bible that is more stiff-necked and hard-hearted than the Edomites. It's the Israelites. But God is not going to let go of them. There are individual Edomites that are saved. And there are individual Jews that are saved. There's always a remnant of Jacob's descendants that God's going to work in in such a way that they would turn back to him so that he could do through those people what he said he would do through those people. Do you understand that? This is huge. God does not double predetermine. We all determine that God is a joke, that God is a nuisance, that God is a bother, and a fool if it is true that he tries to redeem us. And we're all running to hell as fast as we can. Which is really my next point. Those that are compelled to come are running to hell as fast as they can and his kindness interrupts. The truth is, some are given more light, but all are given enough light. Does that make sense? Some are, all are given enough light to repent that God is good, but, but some are given more. And, and the more is the more that they need to get to the place where they determine that God is good and that man is a liar. And then I will just tell you this, of those who are given more, not all come. See also Matthew 11, where he says to um, Capernaum and Bethsaida and uh, other cities where Jesus performed a lot of his miracles, that the miracles that were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, we're done here, we're done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. That's why it's going to be worse for you in the day of judgment than it will be for them. All right, let me just close with this and why this matters. And I'm going to turn you loose to yourself to go and wrestle with these things. Um, This is why this is a big deal. It's a very big deal. Because it affects a lot of things. Okay? Number one. It affects how I view me. If you've got a right view of salvation and God's work in it, it it, it affects you. It humbles you. It humiliates you. It puts you in a place where God can bless you. You say what Paul said in Romans 7, wretched men that I am. You go, I am a liar. I am a wretch. I am in need of amazing grace. It puts you in the right place. You are not some evolved pious, self-righteous, God-fearing human. You are a rebel against heaven. And God interrupts and shows you the futility of your ways. Secondly, it affects how you view others or how I view you. This is what it does when I have a right understanding of this. 
I see you as majestic, loved ones of God, in whom all his delight and dignity was, um, uh, uh, was efforted towards you. That God purchased you with his own blood if you are a believer. And so I look at you. That's why uh, Paul says, when you shepherd the flock of God among you, or, uh, yeah, uh, you shepherd the flock of God among you, that God purchased with his own blood. So when I look at you, you're not just a bunch of folks who are going to church. You are the redeemed that have been given dignity and adoption by the king of the world. And I better treat you with such respect. It affects how I view the lost. In other words, I don't look at lost people, and neither should you. People that are just stuck in their sin, the pharaohs of the world. I don't look at them and go, what is wrong with you? And that little phrase that we say a lot, there but by the grace of God go I, is, is a really good phrase. I, I look at them with a great deal of compassion. I don't say they're stupid, but they're people to be sought, loved, prayed for. How can I be arrogant towards someone that God could, could and would and longs to make his son in a moment? So when you have a right view of salvation, it humbles you, it gives you a great love and a veneration of others, and a great sense of compassion and compulsion for those that are lost. They're not stupid rebels. They are blind. Hey, when you're walking along, you ever been this way, and a guy bumps into you, and you turn around and you see he's got a cane and a dog, do you go, what are you doing? You blind? Can you not see? What is wrong with you? If you did that, what would people do to you? They go, bro, are you kidding me? Yes, he is blind. And how arrogant are you? You know why he's blind and you can see? It is grace. Because God can smite you blind in a moment. And when you look around and you see lost people, if you go, what is wrong with you? You don't understand this text. And so you love them and you treat them with great compassion. It affects how I view evangelism then. I see it as God's efficacious work. I am the hook and Jesus is the bait. And let me just tell you something. All I want to do is tell a joke and run to Jesus. You just preach the gospel. You tell people the truth about the goodness of God and the destiny of man if he continues down that road. And don't you dare think that you can argue people in. You just sow the truth and let God spark that into the full light that we all need. It affects how I view God. My salvation is not a 50-50 deal. It's not a 90 percent God deal 10 percent Todd deal it is a hundred percent God and so it makes it easy for me to worship him love him die for him serve him because it is his work in me you know why you don't really love to go to church you don't know this doctrine you are not humiliated enough and have a right understanding of your lostness And finally, it affects how I view my own security. He that took me out of Egypt, if you will, will will always bring me to Cana. He that gave me the covenant promises will not revoke those gifts. I would tell you this is how the two are tied together. It's a fine place to end. If God tells Abraham he's going to do something, we've got to spiritualize the way he does it, well, then maybe God's going to spiritualize the way he resurrects your little hiney. But I don't think he is. 
I think he's going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. And he is a great God. And we get to serve him and study about him and seek him and venerate him and love one another and treat others with humility and compassion and concern and believe that God is going to do things that we are only going to step back and marvel. He doesn't need our help. We need his. Amen? Let's go study about it. Have a great day, guys. We'll see you.